All right, so we are starting uh, section three of uh, chapter one of part three of On the Mode of Existence of Technical Objects. Um, so we, yeah, we finished uh, section two last time. Um, what did we see? Um, the role of uh, technics and religion um, and the uh, relation between them um, and how they um, arise out of magic um, yeah, so he uh, sort of introduced that schema at the beginning in the introduction of, of this part, and then now he's gone through in a bit more detail. Um, and so section three uh, is titled The Divergence of Technical Thought and of Religious Thought. So this is going to be, again, further details into that process of uh, development of technical and religious thought out of magical thought. Okay, so I'll start reading. Technical thought resulting from the rupture in the primitive structure of the magical world's articulation and retaining the figural elements that can be deposited in objects, tools, or instruments gains an availability from this detachment that enables it to apply itself to every element of the world. However, this rupture also produces a deficit. The technical tool or instrument has only retained figural characteristics detached from the ground to which they were once directly attached since they arose out of an initial structuration that provokes the emergence of figure and ground within a reality that had been one and, con one and continuous. In the magical universe, the figure was the figure of a ground and the ground, ground of a figure. The real, the unity of the real was at once figure and ground. The question of a possible lack of the figure's equity on the ground or of the ground's influence on the figure could not arise, since ground and figure merely constituted a single unity of being. Conversely, in technics after the rupture, what the technical object retained and, and maintained the figural characteristics will henceforth encounter any ground whatsoever, an anonymous foreign ground. The technical object has become a bearer of form, a remnant of figural characteristics, and it seeks to apply this form to a ground that is now detached from the figure, having lost this intimate relation of belonging and capable of being informed by whatever form it encounters, but in a violent, more or less imperfect manner, figure and ground have become foreign and abstract in relation to each other. So this is picking up where um, I think where we left off last time about the idea of technical reality as um, uh, uh, separating from from the magical reality. So in in magical reality, there's uh, or the magical mode of existence, there the world is structured into um, particular places uh, that have a, a particular potency. Um, but then in the technical uh, mode of existence this uh, potency is separated away from those uh, particular places and so the technical object becomes movable um, and usable in any uh, location it's not uh, tied to a particular place um, and so uh, in that sense the the figural characteristic is uh, is separated from the ground it's uh, the ground becomes sort of homogeneous and um, just a, a general background that in which any uh, in, in which a technical object can operate anywhere. There's no um, structuration of that background anymore. Okay, so this is, um, like I said, is sort of just picking up on what we saw last time, so there's probably not too much to discuss there. Um, we can go on to the next paragraph if someone else would like to read it. <clears throat> I can read one. Sure, go ahead. The hylomorphic schema doesn't describe only the genesis of living beings. Perhaps it doesn't even essentially describe it. Perhaps it does not even come from the reflected and conceptualized experience of technics. 
Before the knowledge of the living being and before the reflection on technics, there is this implicit adequation of figure and ground ruptured by technics. If the hylomorphic schema appears to emerge from technical experience, it is as a norm or as an ideal rather than as an experience of the real. Technical experience, putting into play vestiges of figural elements and vestiges of the ground characteristics, gives new life to the primary intuition of a mutual belonging of matter and form, of a coupling preceding all splitting. In this sense, the hylomorphic schema is true, not because of the logical use that has been made of it in ancient philosophy, but as an intuition of a structure of the universe for man prior to the birth of technics. This relation cannot be hierarchi hierarchized. There cannot be more and more abstract successive stages of matter and form, since the real model of the relation of matter and form is the first structuration of the universe into ground and figure. Indeed, this structuration can only be true if it is not abstract, if it is on a single level. The ground is really ground and the figure is really figure. It cannot become a ground for a higher figure. The manner in which Aristotle describes the relations between form and matter, in particular the supposition that matter aspires to form, matter aspires towards form as the female to the male, is already far from primitive magical thought, for this aspiration can exist only if there is a prior detachment. But here there is just one being, which is both matter and form. Furthermore, perhaps it should not be said that the individual being alone has form and matter, since the appearance of a figure ground structure is prior to any segregation of units. The mutual relation of correspondence of such a key point and of such a ground neither presupposes this key point to be isolated from the network of other key points, nor this ground to be without continuity with the other grounds. A universe is what is structured in this way, and not a set ensemble of individuals. After the rupture of the primitive reticulation, the first attached beings to appear are technical objects and religious subjects and they are charged either with figural characteristics or the characteristics of ground, hence they do not fully possess form and matter. Yeah, so there's uh, a fair bit uh, in this uh, fairly long paragraph, um, so we can go sort of go through it, um, uh, not, not quite line by line, but uh, as it develops. Um, so the first uh, thing, and the first point to note, I think, is um, when he mentions the hylomorphic schema, um, so um, I think, yeah, we've seen this before, um, but just as a reminder, that that's, means the schema of matter and form um, and it generally refers to Aristotle's um, uh, ontology of, of matter and form. Um, so the form uh, is inherent in the matter. It's uh, it, rather than um, sort of ideal forms in the more platonic ontology, you have forms that are that inhere in matter. Um, but uh, yeah, so Simondon, this is um, one of the key concepts for Simondon is uh, uh, a criticism and sort of re, uh, reimagining of the hylomorphic schema. Um, and um, so this, this passage here, I think, is connected also to um, uh, one of the chapters in the individuation book, where, which is precisely about the hylomorphic schema and its development out of a technical um, image or technical uh, schema. Um, and so the uh, the sort of 
uh, the, the type of operation that he gives as an example of a hylomorphic schema in operation is um, the production of a brick. So you have a mold um, made of wood or whatever it is, and then you fill it with, with clay. Um, and, uh, and then you, you know, it, you allow it to settle and then you bake it and so on. Um, but the, the general idea is you have this homogeneous matter um, and then you have uh, a form um, in, in the shape of the mold that, uh, that um, imposes the form onto the matter. And his, um, his criticism uh, of, of that schema is that it doesn't account for the interaction, uh, sort of the middle ground between the form and the, and the matter. Um, so it's not just, so the matter is not just sort of bare, bare matter. Um, it's clay that has certain properties. It has to be, um, uh, has, has to have a certain degree of moisture um, and uh, not too much and not too little. Um, and it has to be um, sort of filtered and, and, and uh, processed so that it doesn't have bits of gravel in it um, or, or something like that. Um, so it has to be homogenous in that sense. Um, and uh, the way that the the mold operates is not just is not just sort of a geometrical form that is imposed onto um, a piece of matter. It's um, there's an actual operation of forces in that the the clay pushes outwards onto on the mold, um, and the mold flexes and pushes back inwards on the clay, which causes it to be compressed. Um, so there's an actual interaction of, of forces between the clay and the mold um, to make it, uh, to produce a brick. And it's not just it's not just this abstract shape being imposed on a um, amorphous uh, bare matter. Um, so that's uh, sort of, I think in the background in this paragraph is that criticism of the hylomorphic schema. Um, but then he, he gives um, a sort of an alternate genealogy of the hylomorphic schema here, um, rather than being drawn from techniques uh, from the, the idea of molding a brick or, or something like that. Um, the hylomorphic schema would be um, drawn from this figure ground relationship, which underlies all these different modes of existence that we've seen so far. Um, and so this is, um, as he, he puts it, it gives new life to the, the primary intuition of mutual belonging of matter and form. Um, so it, this is a, a more um, dynamic, I guess, conception of the hylomorphic schema. Uh, it's not just a, again, it's not just the geometrical form being imposed on abstract um, bare matter. It's um, figure and grounds that have this uh, sort of dynamic, almost living relationship to each other. Um, and uh, because of that uh, dynamism, it, it makes this hylomorphic schema um, into something much more dynamic and, and almost vital itself. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll, I'll stop there for now and we can look at some other elements as we go along. Uh, it might be uh, perhaps too much of a generalization, but it seems to me like Simondon is uh, to some extent presupposing uh, if, if I may uh, do this without essentializing, a French tendency of uh, pointing out the uh, externality of philosophical concepts. Uh, I, which implies that philosophical concepts don't have their conditions in themselves. They don't come out of philosophy, but uh, let's say uh, a domain of practice. And so in this case, uh, I'm not sure if it's, it would be correct to 
uh, call what he's talking about a domain of practice because it's the magical universe. But still, uh, it is philosophical concepts, matter and form. They derive from something more fundamental than, than just thought, I'm thinking. Yeah, that's an interesting suggestion about um, this being a particularly French um, uh, sort of mode of thinking. Um, because it makes me think of, um, I know that at, at this time, in the sort of middle of the 20th century, um, the French philosophical curriculum required um, required students to take uh, um, some, some sort of uh, external subject matter, um, something in the sciences. Um, and uh, so you found a lot of um, philosophy students ended up taking something in, in the human sciences, whether it's uh, anthropology or, or linguistics or something like that. And then you find in the, you know, precisely in the post-World War II era in French philosophy that um, lots of philosophers are, are, you know, taking concepts and, and theories and so on from those different human sciences. And, uh, you know, you have the structuralism and, and post-structuralism and, and so on. Um, so, yeah, I think, um, I think that uh, sort of external um, externalization of concepts or, or trying to ground philosophical concepts in something outside of philosophy, I think that um, may be connected to the French education system and um, that uh, requirements to, to take uh, something outside of philosophy. Well, thanks. That gives uh, my remark a much better context than I intended. And uh, so as to your, your, your points, I guess, specific to Simon Don about um, the way that he's performing that operation of, of sort of externalization. Um, <clears throat> so I, um, yeah, you, you mentioned, or, or you said sort of in passing the idea that um, um, this is a, a grounding in practice um, in the magical sphere. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's right. I think, um, um, I mean, the magical sphere is, is, or the magical mode of existence is presented as a, a sort of unity. Um, uh, it's sort of prior to the split between theory and practice, um, which, which develops later on, as, as we've seen. Um, but at the same time, I think, um, I think you can call it practical in a broader sense, uh, in a sense that it involves the, um, an active relationship of the individual with the world. It's not, um, it's not a contemplative relationship um, of the individual to the world. Um, so the, these key points that, that structure the, the magical universe are um, key points for a certain type of action. Um, so like climbing the mountain, for example, like we saw last time. Um, so I think uh, in that broader sense, uh, it would still be a practical um, uh, sort of sphere in which these concepts of, of uh, matter and form are grounded. Yeah, those examples uh, make things more concrete I, now that I remember them. You know, climbing uh, and some other forms of uh, relationship to key points. Um, and so another point that I think is maybe of interest in, in this paragraph is um, his, so his other um, so the first sort of um, differentiation that he presents with the more traditional hylomorphism is that dynamical quality of uh, figure and ground um, as opposed to a purely logical form and matter distinction. Um, uh, but then the second point is that um, 
so as he puts it, it can't be hierarchized um, in his in his uh, model. Um, so that means that you, so unlike in the Aristotelian um, figure or sorry uh, form and matter model, his uh, conception of, of uh, figure and ground uh, can't be uh, can't be um, iterated. Um, so you can't have uh, something that is ground in one. Uh, or sorry, figure. You, you can have something that's figure at one level serving as ground for the level above it. It's only you have one figure and one ground, um, and they they play that role essentially. It's not uh, it's not a, an external property for them to be included as figure or ground for something else. He seems to be also ruling out uh, platonic step by step uh, ascent uh, to the realm of ideas. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't think of it that way, but uh, I think that's true. Um, so there's no, um, yeah, there's no like in the platonic schema you have the the um, the numbers or the ideal numbers that play the sort of intermediary role, um, and uh, and you have right the ascent of the soul to uh, to the contemplation of the ideas, um, but. Um, in this conception, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything analogous to that in Simondon's conception. Um, so there's no, um, there's nothing like a, a sort of uh, progressive purification of the, you know, removing the ground and, and getting a pure figure that would that would sort of correspond to Plato's um, ascent of the soul. And then maybe I think the third, probably the last point on this paragraph is. Um, um, so he 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 just sort of denies or he qualifies the distinction between figure and ground. Um, so he he suggests that, or he he argues that it it's, uh, it doesn't apply to an individual being um, in the way that the traditional hylomorphic schema uh, um, does. So uh, so he says furthermore, perhaps it should not be said that the individual being alone has form and matter, since the appearance of a figure ground structure is prior to any segregation of units. Um, so it's not it's not an individual being, whether it's a human or an animal of some kind or whatever it is. It's not that individual being that has form and matter, properly speaking. It's the whole um, system in which that that individual exists. So it's the individual plus the non-individuated surrounding that um, that corresponds to the form and matter distinction. Um, and so again, he's he's introducing a. a um, uh, a qualification into the traditional hylomorphic schema here and um, applying it not to an isolated individual but to an individual in his environment. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph if someone else would like to read. Uh, sure, I can go for it. Looks like 61's on the phone. Um, the dissociation of the primitive structuring of the magical universe entails a series of consequences for technics and religion, and through them conditions the subsequent coming into being of science and ethics. Unity belongs to the magical world. The phase shift opposing technics and religion irreducibly leaves the content of technics with a status lower than unity and that of religion with a status higher than unity. This is where all the other consequences come from. In order to fully understand the status of the technicity of objects, one must grasp this coming into being that puts the primitive unity out of phase. Religion, retaining its ground characteristics, homogeneity, qualitative nature, lack of distinction of elements within a system of mutual influences, 
long distance action through space and time engendering ubiquity and eternity represents the putting into play of these functions of totality. A particular being, a defined object of attention or effort is always considered in religious thought to be smaller than the real unity, inferior to the totality and included in it, surpassed by the totality of space and preceded and followed by the immensity of time. The object, the being, the individual, subject or object are always grasped as less than unity, dominated by a sensed totality that infinitely surpasses them. The source of transcendence lies in the function of totality that dominates the particular being. According to the religious view, this particular being is understood with reference to a totality in which it participates, on which it exists, but which it can never completely express. Religion universalizes the function of a totality, which is dissociated and consequently freed of all figural attachment limiting it. The grounds related to the world in magical thought and consequently limited by the very structuration of the magical universe become in religious thought a limitless spatial as well as temporal background. They retain their positive qualities of ground, the forces, the powers, the influences, the quality, but rid themselves of their limits and of their belonging, which attach them to the hick et nunc. They become absolute ground, a, a grounding totality, totalité de fond. The universe is promoted on the basis of these freed up and to a certain extent, abstract magical grounds. So we saw the one side of the split into uh, of the magical universe. Uh, we saw that the technical reality split off from the magical universe uh, as the figural um, being being uh, separated from the ground. Uh, and then now this is the other side, the uh, the religious mode of existence as the the ground side, um, which is now separate from the figural. Um, and so in that separation, it's no longer tied to um, a particular key points um, like in the magical universe it becomes um, sort of all-encompassing and uh, totalizing um, and uh, so in that sense it's um, greater than unity it's uh, any any given unit that you take whether it's a um, an individual person or a city or whatever it is is always smaller than the the total religious unity um, or the unity of the divine i guess you could say um, and uh, um, yeah, so that that, that background um, becomes, or sorry, the ground becomes a, a, a sort of abstract background on which everything else um, exists rather than uh, uh, tied to a particular point. Okay, so I think that paragraph was pretty straightforward, so there's not too much to, um, to go into in there. Um, so I'll go on to the next paragraph. After the disjunction of ground and figure, religious thought preserves the other part of the magical world, the ground with its qualities, tensions, and forces. But like the figural and technical schemas, this ground itself also becomes something detached from the world, abstracted from the primitive milieu. And in the same way, the figural schemas of, of technics, once freed from their adherence to the world, fix themselves into, onto the tool or instrument by objectivizing themselves. So too, the ground qualities made available by the mobilization of figure through technicity fix themselves onto, onto subjects. The technical objectivation that leads to the emergence of the technical object, mediating between man and the world, has religious subjectivation as its counterpart. In this way, the technical mediation establishes itself by means of a thing that becomes the technical object. Religious sorry, in the same way that technical mediation establishes itself by means of a thing that becomes the technical object, religious mediation appears by virtue of the fixing of the characteristics of ground onto real or imaginary subjects, divinities or priests. 
religious subjectivation normally leads to mediation through uh, through the priest, you know, the typo there. Um, while technical mediation leads to the mediation through the technical object. Technicity retains the figural characteristic of the primitive complex of man in the world, while religiosity retains the character of ground. So it's interesting here that he um, he characterizes the um, uh, subjectivation um, onto this divinity um, as imaginary. Um, so you have uh, either subjectivation, uh, uh, sorry, a fixing of the characteristics of ground onto real or imaginary subjects, divinities or priests. So that it can be either fixed onto a real, um, a real subject like the, a priest, or onto an imaginary subject like a divinity. Uh, this is out of uh, it's out of joint with where he sort of started historically, but I, I'm just I'm very much I'm very much realizing that uh, the work of Andrew Feenberg, who who who's got this theory called instrumentalization theory, which is which is divided into uh, sort of primary instrumentalization and secondary instrumentalization, where primary is very much about the kind of objective functionality of something, and secondary instrumentalization is is kind of how um, like um, society and and social forces and politics kind of. Um, penetrate, shape, or or adapt uh, technology to a milieu. I'm I'm just realizing the extent to which he's kind of using this framework, and I'm sure it will become more evident to me as we go forward, more closer to the present. That this is kind of where this is maybe a this is, seems like a really important source for him to to come up with that theory. To come up with that theory. Yeah, I don't know Feinberg well, but I I remember that he does cite Simondo uh, somewhere. Um, so uh, definitely a source that he's drawing on. Okay, so we can go on to the next couple paragraphs. They're uh, two short ones, so I think we can read them together. Uh, I could go if, okay. Sure, sounds good. Okay. Technicity and religiosity are not degraded forms of magic or relics of magic. They come from the splitting on two of the primitive magical complex, the original reticulation of the human media into figure and ground. It is through their coupling and not in and of themselves that techniques and religion are the heirs of magic. Religion is not more magical than techniques. It is the subjective phase of the result of a split, while techniques is the objective phase of the same split. Techniques and religion are contemporaries of one another and considered on their own, they are impoverished with respect to the magic from which they come. So I can go on to read this, the uh, other one. Religion thus has by nature the vocation to represent the demand for totality. When it splits into a theoretical mode and into a practical mode, it becomes by way of theology the demand for a systematic representation of the real according to an absolute unity. Through morality, it becomes the demand from the ethical point of view for absolute norms of action, justified in the name of totality, superior to any hypothetical, that is, particular imperative. To both science and ethics, it brings the principle of reference to totality, which is the aspiration to the unity of theoretical knowledge and to the absolute character of the moral imperative. The religious inspiration constitutes a permanent reminder of the relativity of a particular being with respect to an unconditional totality, going beyond all objects and subjects of knowledge and of action. 
this uh, this passage um, reminds me of a, a point that um, Alfred North Whitehead makes, I think, in Adventures of Ideas, if I remember correctly. Um, he, he argues that the conception of the natural world as a unity, um, so something that is subject to um, to the same laws everywhere, for example, um, he argues that that conception derives from uh, monotheism um, uh, and as, you know the universe as being uh, the the creation of a single divinity um, that you know uh, generates it in a certain ordered uh, way and uh, a unified way. Um, so it's, I think Simon Dong here is making a similar point um, that um, this sort of uh, this conception of a, a, a singular order of the world, uh, both in the sphere of knowledge and in the sphere of action, um, this conception is uh, an essentially religious conception. It's uh, it's um, yeah, it's it comes out of that first uh, split into um, uh, first split of the magical universe, um, and then taking that subjective side, um, uh, it's sort of uh, is a constant um, reminder of this uh, con unconditional totality um, in op opposition to anything that's conditioned and particular. I am, I am tempted uh, to think that Simondon, uh, at least in these sections, uh, might have another model uh, for uh, a totality that is more open uh, if this, maybe it only uh, sounds close to me, this one, uh, that is affiliated with religion uh, to some extent. And uh, the open one would be the reticular model, I guess. Uh, that word uh, seems to carry uh, some resonance with uh, a more advanced technological society as well. Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure um, whether that religious totality um, has a sense of being closed or not. Um, I would. I would think. Um, I'm just trying to remember because there's um, there's a Duff Sun text where he does. Um, he he criticizes the idea of the universe as being uh, closed in that sense. Um, um, and precisely because the universe is, is always subject to um, to transformation and evolution um, that, that is not closed. Um, but um, yeah, so I, my inclination is to say that Simon Don is probably thinking along those lines here, even even when he's talking about the religious universe. Um, so when he talks about totality here, I, I don't think he would want, want to um, give that the sense of, of a, a closed totality but of a um a universe that is uh, capable of evolution and uh, development and i think the uh, this um sort of openness aspect also ties back to what he uh, said a couple paragraphs ago about how this um how we can't understand the universe as a collection of individual things or a, a set of individual things um we have to treat uh, this figure ground or, or form and matter distinction as something that applies to an individual in its environment. Um, so there's a, a sort of um, uh, pre-individuated um, uh, universe or, or the pre-individuated structure of the universe that um, 
is goes beyond the individual um, and uh, goes so it goes beyond any any uh, closed system, I would say. But yeah, I think it's a um, maybe like I would say that the text that we've read so far doesn't uh, fully determine that interpretation. That's a little bit of speculation on my part. Um, so I think it's something we can keep in mind as we go along. To what extent is there something like openness of the religious universe or of the, the religious mode of existence? Okay, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph. Um, so I can read, um, looks like there's a couple short ones, so I'll, I'll do them together. Conversely, technics receives content that is always below the status of unity because the schemas of efficacy and the structures that result from the fragmentation of the primitive network of key points cannot apply to the totality of the world. Technical objects are multiple and fragmentary by nature. Technical thought enclosed within this plurality can progress, but only by multiplying technical objects without being able to recapture the primitive unity. Even by infinitely multiplying technical objects, it is impossible to recover an absolute adequation with the world because each of the objects attack the world only in a single point and at a single moment. It is localized, particularized. By adding technical objects to one another, one can neither recreate a world nor recover the contact with the world in its unity, which was the goal of magical thought. In its relation to a determined object or to a determined task, technical thought is always at a level inferior to that of unity. It can present several objects, several means, and choose the best, but it cannot always remain inadequate uh, but sorry, but it nevertheless always remains inadequate to the whole of the unity of the object or of the task. Each schema, each technical object, each technical operation is dominated and guided by the whole from which it derives its means and its orientation, and which provides it with a never attained principle of unity that it translates by com combining and multiplying its schemas. The vocation of technical thought is by nature representing the point of view of the element, and it adheres to the elementary function. Technicity, by introducing itself into a domain, fragments it and leads, it to, leads to the appearance of a chain of successive and elementary mediations, governed by the unity of the domain and subordinated to it. Technical thought conceives of an overall functioning, fonctionnement d'ensemble, as a series of elementary processes, acting point by point and step by step. It localizes and multiplies the mediation schemas, always remaining below unity. The element in technical thought is more stable, better known, and in a certain way more perfect than the ensemble. It is really an object, whereas the ensemble always remains to a certain extent inherent in the world. Religious thought finds the opposite balance. For religious thought, totality is that which is more stable, stronger, and more valid than the element. So there's another contrast he's presenting between uh, religious thought and technical thought is, um, so the religious uh, re religious thought is always, um, or the religious, um, mode of existence is always greater than unity, um, whereas the technical um, mode of existence is always inferior to, to, un to uh, unity. Um, so each, uh, each technical object is always um, a partial mediation, but it never uh, recaptures that unity of the magical mode of existence. Um, it's always, uh, you can always introduce further technical objects, um, no matter how many mediations you apply, you never regain that initial unity. By the way, this will be uh, tangential, maybe. Uh, I found in my reading notes something like uh, an allusion to uh, this um, 
statement by who was it? The, a science fiction writer. I can't exactly remember right now. But he he wrote the script of uh, 2001 uh, space uh, Kubrick's film. Uh, he uh, uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Uh, I think it's not verbatim, but something along those lines. Yeah, I wonder how that fits in here because um, um, so in, in this passage we just read, um, uh, Simon Don is, is um, denying that technology can can ever recapture that magical unity. But then that, that Clark quote seems to suggest that um, um, at least from the point of view of someone who doesn't understand that that uh, technical object, um, it would be uh, indistinguishable from magic. So it would seem to regain that magical unity. Um, so I wonder if, um, um, yeah, so the, the Clark quote is sort of looking at things subjectively. That is, um, it's, it's from the point of view of someone who doesn't understand the technology, um, whereas Simon Don is looking at it um, objectively. That is, um, when you have a, an understanding of the, the way the technical object functions, then it's uh, it doesn't um, it doesn't it can never reach that uh, primitive unity of the magical uh, universe. Yeah, it seems like it would be he would he would contradict that that um, idiom and say that would be a kind of category error, right? Yeah, I think it would always for for Simon Dome, it would always be an illusion, um, like. The fact that you know some you know aliens land on Earth and their their technology is so advanced that it looks like magic to us that's just an illusion because we don't understand it. Um, uh, it's only um, um, yeah. So if if we had a proper grasp of the functioning of that technology, then we would understand that it's not magical, um, and uh, that there's always that distinction between the magical and the the technical. Uh, the other thing that this passage puts in mind for me is uh, the interview in uh, Der Spiegel with uh, Heidegger, where in both in over the course of the interview, both he's he 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 says, you know, the interviewer asks him what's what comes in the place of uh, the kind of the the concealing of like what what's the what's the sort of ultimate concealing of being or what where do we stand with respect to being now? And Heidegger basically gestures to cybernetics to say that we've sort of reached a pinnacle of the concealing of being. And then later on in the interview, he's asked, well, how do we get out of it? And his answer is only a God can save us now. Right. So this kind of like um, I, I just see I see that sort of uh, here in, in this in this sort of last paragraph that we were looking at. Yeah, I think in the sense that um, uh, if we sort of map on to um, like between Simon Do and Heidegger, if, if regaining that primitive unity of being um, is we can sort of map that onto the idea of uh, you know the unveiling of being in ancient Greece or or whenever Heidegger thinks that sort of uh, presence uh, uh, happens, um, then uh, yeah, that technical reality um, in a sense like the more you try to re uh, regain that unity through technical reality, the further away you are from it um, because it's uh, it, it's something that you you can never actually um, you can never actually reproduce that uh, magical unity through technical means. Um, 
and yeah, so for Heidegger, that there's a sort of um, uh, I forget the exact wording, but he says like the the greatest danger is the greatest promise or something like that. Um, so his idea, I guess, is that um, through this um, uh, confusion of being. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I think it's in the danger lies the saving power. I think is the way he puts it. Right. That sounds more Heideggerian. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think um, I think the the idea is that um, as as the um, the history of being becomes more and more concealed in in the technical reality, um, then there's a sort of moment of reversal where. Um, uh, the the presence of being is manifested uh, in that same concealment. Um, so the it's a sort of um, almost a gestalt shift um, where you sort of um, see this concealment of being as itself being the 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 presence of being. Um, and Simonto, I think, is denying that something like that can happen. He uh, he. Uh, um, yeah, so he doesn't think that there's ever going to be a, a sort of return to the primitive magical unity. There's only secondary unities that that can be developed later on in uh, in science and and later philosophy, as we'll see. Okay, so we can go on to the next paragraph, I think. Technics bring as much in the theoretical domain as in the ethical domain a concern for the elements. In the sciences, the contribution of techniques has consisted in allowing a representation of phenomena taken one by one according to a decomposition into simple elementary processes comparable to the operations of technical objects. Such is the role of the me mechanistic hypothesis that enables Descartes to represent the rainbow as the overall result of the point-by-point -point trajectory of each luminous cor corpuscle in each droplet of water in a cloud. It is according to the same method that Descartes explains the functioning of the heart, decomposing a complete cycle into simple successive operations and showing that the functioning of the whole is the result of the play of elements necessitated by their particular disposition, for example, that of each valve. Descartes doesn't ask himself what the, why the heart is made in this way with valves and cavities, but how it functions given that this is how it is made. The application of schemas drawn from techniques does not account for the existence of the totality taken in its unity, but only for the point-by-point -point and instant-by-instant -instant functioning of this totality. Yeah, so this um, um, reference to Descartes here uh, sort of uh, reminds me of what we saw, I think it was in the technical mentality paper, um, where he he referred to Descartes and the um, the uh, idea of the transmission of evidence um, as corresponding to um, links in a chain. Um, so in the same way that um, a, a, a rational argument transmits the evidence from the premises to the conclusion, um, in in the same way that a, a chain uh, transmits force from one link to the next. Um, and the chain, the whole chain, has uh, is only as strong as the weakest link, um, and so there's the same sense here uh, uh, in this technical reality um, of uh, a local action. So each um, each element only acts um, in one particular place in its local environment, and uh, you have to sort of connect them one to another in order to create um, 
mediation in a larger scale. The, the contrast seems to be uh, acting pro in proximity and uh, acting globally, right? Yes. Um, the yeah. So the religious mode of existence has a, a global action. Um, uh, is always in connection with this totality, um, whereas the technical mode of existence always acts in proximity. It, it's only uh, you can only operate in on the the object that's near you. Um, and then, um, so they, the, both of those are, are sort of drawn out of the magical universe, which is not structured either in proximity or globally, but it's structured by the network of key points. So each of the points is related to its environment, but it's also related to each of the other points in, a, in the network. So it's a, the magical unity has a, a, a sort of a particular structure that is not either in proximity or um, uh, global. Uh, to to bring uh, Heidegger into this again, but uh, there is a way the meaning of uh, what is near can change. Uh, so think if you think about uh, wireless uh, communication, uh, there is certainly a certain communication at a distance influences even we might say. Uh, I don't know. Does that resemble uh, religion then? Um, yeah, so I think you're referring to um, some some elements from uh, being in time, where he talks about distancing and uh, um, um, you know the relation how space is produced through this relational structure um, of references. Um, but uh, I think I think when we talk about um, wireless communication, for example, like I mean basically what we're doing right now, um, we're all um, well. I guess it's not wireless, but we are. Um, you know, communicating from probably thousands of kilometers apart from each other, um, and uh, um, but but in a, a, a more I guess existential sense, we're we're near each other because we're in communication. Um, so I think um, my guess is that that would count as a form of proximity, um, and in particular when you look at the technical level, um, there are you know. Uh, there are cables connecting, uh, you know, my building to some uh, trunk line somewhere in the city, which is connected through another cable um, onto whatever international uh, transatlantic cables and and so on. Um, so that each uh, each signal is being sent from in proximity in in a sort of long chain um, of uh, of technical elements, you know, crossing thousands of kilometers, uh, so it's still acting locally. Okay, that, that, that clarifies things. But I think uh, maybe at the same time, there is something like the religious um, aspect as well. Like he always, so he always um, emphasizes that these two um, modes of existence are complementary, like each one is, is sort of um, the other half of, of the other. Um, so the religious side, I guess, of what we're doing right now is the fact that we're all um, um, sort of uh, subordinated to this um, um, this activity that we're doing. Like each of us is is less than the unity of this activity of uh, you know discussing a philosophical text. Um, 
So we're all um, subordinated to it, which and, and that activity is greater than any of us. So I think the, there's a religious aspect, an aspect of totality to our discussion. Um, at the same time, that there's a te technical aspect in the sense that um, you have the transmission of signals through wires in proximity, in, you know, one link at a time. It's a really good book that describes uh, this condition. That basically what you just described, uh, John Durham Peters' book. Uh, Speaking into the air is, is quite good for descri describing a kind of a history of that of the development of the technical means of communication and then their kind of their sort of religiosity and their and their the ways that they sort of inculture people. That sounds really interesting. I, I uh, didn't know of that book at all. I just pasted a link into the chat. Oh yeah, I see it. Yeah, hmm, cool. Yeah, there's all kinds of um, like I know in the introduction of the the telegraph in the 19th century, and then again with the introduction of radio and uh, transatlantic um, um, transmission, like the first transatlantic cables and so on. Um, it's it's you know people at the time talked about how it, it created a sense of um, proximity that hadn't existed before, um, of being connected to people you know hundreds or or thousands of kilometers away. Um, uh, and so um, the the sort of existential proximity to another person followed these um, these lines of communication. So you might be closer to someone who is hundreds of kilometers away than you are to your next door neighbor, for example, uh, depending on how those lines of communication are structured. Okay, um, so we can go on to the next paragraph, which uh, I will read. In the ethical domain, technical thought not only introduces means of action which are fragmentary and, and tied to the capacities of each object becoming a utensil, but also a certain duplication of the action by technicity. A definite human action considered in its results could have been accomplished by a determinate technical function in going through different stages. Elements and moments of action have their technical analog. An effort of attention, of memory, could have been replaced by a technical operation. Technicity provides a partial equivalence of the results of an action. It accentuates the awareness of the action by the being which accomplishes it in the form of results. It mediates and objectivizes the results of the action by comparison with those of the technical operation, performing a decomposition of the action into partial results, into elementary accomplishments. In the same way that in the sciences, technicity introduces the search for a how through the decomposition of an overall phenomenon, phénomène d'ensemble, into elementary operations, so too in ethics, technicity introduces the search for a decomposition of a global action into elements of action, the total action being envisaged as that which leads to a result. The decomposition of the action called for by technics considers the elements of an action as movements obtaining partial results. Technicity presupposes that an action is limited to its results. It is not concerned with the subject of the action taken in its real totality, nor even with an action in its totality, insofar as the totality of action is founded on the unity of the subject. The concern with the result in ethics is the analog of the search for a how in the sciences. Result and process remain below the unity of action or of the whole ensemble of the real. I feel like this should be required reading for uh, students who are beginning to study machine machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yeah, it's definitely um, something that's um, 
something that's lacking, I think, in in technical education, as far as I am familiar with it, um, is any sort of reflection on what it is you're doing when you're um, trying to, you know, produce a machine learning system or or artificial intelligence or whatever it is. And uh, precisely one sort of weakness, of, like you do have, um, I think most um, uh, engineering departments or computer science departments or whatever, they, they do have a, a course on computer ethics or, or engineering ethics or something along those lines. Um, but it's precisely um, tied to uh, some results oriented thinking in the same way that, that Simon Tong points to here. Um, so it's like, um, looking at your AI system and making sure it's not racist in, in some uh, sort of obvious way. Um, but uh, there's no more um, more total, I guess, um, understanding of, of the action. Um, you know, uh, if uh, like facial recognition system being used for police purposes or something like that, rather than uh, the, the only sort of questions they'll ask about a facial recognition system is, you know, is it reliable in uh, recognizing people, um, uh, you know, in a non-racist way or something like that. But the ethical questions about the overall use of the facial recognition system are not really introduced. Yeah, just the idea that, that you'd actually need to, you'd need to go into the territory that Simon was describing here in terms of the decomposition of actions, basically, right? Like, so you'd actually, like, it's something that would have to be perhaps emergent from the from the programming practices, from the software practices that, that that they're engaged in, like it would have to be almost a a kind of a more metaphysical conversation around what it means to kind of discretize, you know, phenomena or something like that, both social and natural phenomena. Yeah, because the sort of background assumption that that structures a lot of work in artificial intelligence is precisely that you can. Um, break up actions into their components and, and um, uh, you know, do whatever mathematical operations on them uh, in order to extract data from them. Um, and obviously that's something that, that you can you can do, uh, you can extract data, but the, the actual meaningfulness of that data is always uh, questionable um, if it's not sort of tied to a, a, a more uh, total understanding of the action itself. Yeah, and then just lastly, I wonder, like, I, I haven't looked into it much, but the just the the way that applied ethics kind of comes in as a kind of rearguard action, like what that what, what significance that is or what dynamic results from from the ethical conversation kind of happening, happening last in this kind of retrojective way where it's like the programming's done, but and this is kind of this is the best we can. This is sort of how we are going to understand how the world is broken up into uh, into kind of ethical elements in the same way that the programming has has done it with the. Uh, you know, with with uh, datafying stuff in the first place. Yeah, I think um, I think that's precisely what he's pointing to in this paragraph. Um, I think that's a really um, sort of a, a prescient um, understanding of the way that um, this sort of um, particularist ethics, so ethics that is is sort of limited to looking at particular actions and, and saying whether they're good or, or bad. Um, you know, sort of after the fact, um, I think that it's uh, so it's something that he was able to point to the way that this sort of accompanies that breaking down of actions into their components. Um, you know, before that was even something that that was uh, 
really technically possible. Like there were, there were, I think, like elementary uh, chess playing computers at his time, but they were not anywhere near the sophistication of, uh, you know, Deep Blue in the 90s and, and computers that exist today. So he's pointing to something that uh, didn't even really exist uh, yet, but that has come into existence since then. In certain uh, moral philosophies that don't necessarily have any reference to uh, machines or computers and their interactions with humans, uh, they even uh, have uh, certain tendencies in this direction of concentrating on the how and the results. Uh, I remember uh, some conversations with uh, philosophy students uh, and in whose departments the central uh, dogma is the consequentialist ethical position. I'm not entirely uh, sure about what it is, but I think it is a similar tendency. Yeah, moral philosophy is not really my sphere of, uh, of expertise, but my understanding is that uh, a consequentialist position, or like in general, obviously there's going to be particular um, sort of sub-differentiations within that, but in general, consequentialism means that, yeah, precisely that you, um, the ethical value or moral value of an action has to do with the results that it brings about. Um, so, um, uh, like, you know, the, the sort of classic uh, exercise of this is the trolley problem where, you know, if you pull the lever, you save someone's life, uh, or you you kill one person instead of killing five people or or whatever. Um, and so the the consequentialist will argue that yes, you should do that because your um, the result is is better. you're you're maximizing the um, overall good uh, by killing one person instead of uh, letting five people die. Um, whereas the um, uh, the more sort of Kantian approach um, has to do with the intentions of the action. Um, so if you pull the lever to kill the one person, then you're you're responsible for killing that person. Uh, and then and so that's an immoral action. That's sort of like the my very hazy big picture understanding of the sort of delimitation delimit within the sphere of uh, moral philosophy. Um, but yeah, so the, the consequentialist position is, is precisely based on looking at the consequences of an action um, as being what is morally relevant about that action. And, uh, you know, tying this back into the AI uh, discussion there, like this is something that um, I know has been discussed with self-driving cars, um, which, uh, you know, this was a, a big thing like five years ago, I remember, where people were, were trying to... Um, understand how uh, what sort of ethical programming you would have to build into a car where the, you know a self-driving car might have to decide whether to um, uh, you know drive through a crowd of pedestrians or or crash into a wall and kill the driver uh, or the, the passenger of the car um, and you know what what sort of calculations should the car make in in deciding you know when is it uh, you know how to how to um, weigh the different lives against each other and so on. Um, that that's, discussion seems to have um, kind of faded away a little bit because of uh, self-driving cars not working out quite as quickly as uh, the industry expected. But um, 
yeah, there's, there's the same type of discussion of uh, um, like sort of weighing the effects as being what moral reasoning is all about. Okay, so we can go on to the next couple paragraphs if someone else would like to read. Sure, I can go again. The postulation of an absolute and unconditional justification that religion directs at ethics translates into the search for intention as opposed to the search for the result that, that is inspired by techniques. In the sciences, religious thought introduces a quest for absolute theoretical unity, rendering necessary a search for the sense of the coming into being and of the existence of given phenomena, hence answering a why, while technical thought brings with it an examination of the how of each of the phenomena. In possessing a content that is, a lower, that is at a lower level than unity, technical thought is the paradigm of all inductive thinking, whether in the theoretical order or in the practical order. It contains, it contains this inductive process within itself prior to any separation into a theoretical mode and a practical mode. Induction, in fact, is not only a logical process in the strict sense of the term. One can consider as inductive any approach whose content has a lower status than that of unity and which strives to attain unity, or at least tends toward unity on the basis of plurality of elements where each is lower than unity. What induction grasps, what it starts from, is an element that is not in itself sufficient and complete, that does not constitute a unity. It thus goes beyond each particular element, combining it with other elements that are themselves particular, in order to attempt to find an analog of unity. Within induction, there is a search for the ground of reality on the basis of figural elements that are fragments, to want to find the law beneath phenomena, as with the induction of Bacon or J.S. Mill, or to seek only to find what is common to all individuals of the same kind, as with Aristotle's induction, is to postulate that beyond the plurality of phenomena and individuals, a stable and common ground of reality exists, which is the unity of the real. So yeah, he points to that, that contrast that I was um, sort of uh, fumbling towards about the, so the, the ethics that corresponds to technical reality is, um, uh, has to do with um, the consequences of an action, whereas the ethics that corresponds to uh, religious uh, thinking has to do with intentions. Um, so it's the, the why of something rather than the how. Uh, it's an expansive sense of induction uh, that he's talking about, uh, right? It goes beyond uh, theoretical and practical. It is even beyond logical. Uh, it reminds me of an earlier uh, section where we discussed the uh, logic and metaphysics uh, relation. Uh, also, uh, late Mason, you referred to uh, Alice in Wonderland and the Deleuze passage. Right, yeah, that it's more, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what to make of it. I don't. I don't know enough about um, kind of the subtler distinctions of induction that you'd be able to say much here. Yeah. So induction is is generally just contrasted with deduction, right? So inductive. Uh, so in in the sphere of logic or or epistemology. Um, um, so inductive reasoning is when you proceed from particulars to the general. Um, so. Um, 
you say Socrates is, is a man and Socrates is mortal, you know, Plato is a man, Plato is mortal, etc. And then you conclude um, with probability and not certainty, you conclude that all men are mortal. Um, uh, and yeah, so the general, so um, uh, inductive reasoning uh, never reaches um, uh, absolute certainty in the way that uh, deductive reasoning does. Um, so um, you're always left with a, a probability which you can increase, you know, uh, asymptotically towards unity, but it never actually reaches unity. Uh, so I think that's the the model that he's drawing on and he's using the term induction in a broader sense to include any type of um, action that has that same structure where it's always less than unity but uh, it can you can approach closer and closer to unity but never actually reach it so is the idea that he's including other more sort of embodied ways of kind of groping towards unity that is that that just don't fit that formal that more formal definition? Yeah, I think what, what we're going to see in the next paragraph is that he wants to include uh, a utilitarian ethics um, as being a kind of inductive um, operation as well. Um, so in the same way that uh, um, uh, in in the realm of thinking, you you never approach unity um, in the same way a utilitarian ethic never never reaches unity. It, it can always just approach it closer and closer, but never actually reach it. So uh, maybe we should just go on to the next paragraph, and that might be a little bit clearer. Okay, so I'll read the next one. It is no different for any ethics that would come directly from technics. To want to compose the whole of the duration of life from a series of instants, extracting from each situation what is pleasant in it, and to want to construct the happiness of life from the accumulation of these pleasant elements, as is done in ancient eudaemonism or in utilitarianism, is to proceed in an inductive manner by trying to replace the unity of life's duration and the unity of human aspiration with a plurality of instants and with the homogeneity of all successive desires. The elaboration to which Epicureanism submits desires has as its sole aim to achieve the incorporation into the continuity of existence by proceeding in a cumulative manner. For this purpose, each of the desires must be dominated by the subject, enveloped in it, smaller than unity, so as to be able to be treated and manipulated as a true element. This is why the passions are eliminated, since they cannot be treated as elements. They are larger than the unity of the subject. They dominate it, come from further afield than it does, and tend to advance further than it does, obliging it to go beyond its limits. Lucretius tries to destroy the passions from within by showing that they are based on errors. It does not, in fact, take into account the element of tendency in passion. In other words, this force that inserts itself into the subject, but that is vaster than it, and in relation to which it appears as a very, very limited being. Tendency cannot be considered as being contained in the subject understood as unity. Wisdom, having reduced the forces at the origin of action to a lower status than that of the unity of the moral subject, can organize them as elements and reconstruct a moral subject within the natural subject. This moral subject, however, never completely reaches the level of unity. Between the reconstructed moral subject and the natural subject, there remains a void that is impossible to fill. The inductive approach remains within plurality. It constructs a bundle of elements, but this bundle cannot be equivalent to a real unity. Every ethical technique leaves the moral subject dissatisfied because they did not grasp this unity. The subject cannot content itself with a life that would be a sequence of happy instances even an interrupted one. A life that is perfectly successful, element by element, is not yet a moral life. It lacks unity, which is what makes it the life of a subject. 
So here's that analogy. Um, so here he's going to use the term induction to describe um, Epicurean or utilitarian uh, ethics, um, um, where um, the 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 sort of mode of reasoning of of, uh, of ethical reasoning or moral reasoning um, has to do with uh, the uh, happiness um, felt at at a, a given instance, and then it's just um, Sort of stringing together a set of instances, and you want to maximize the happiness over that whole set of instances, um, um, in the same way that inductive thinking um, starts out with particular um, uh, particular instances of knowledge and uh, sort of strings them together to produce an approximation to general knowledge, but never actually reaches that general. Um, so yeah, it's induction in this broader sense. I find this uh, passage really fascinating, uh, especially uh, the way this most dispassionate writer talks about happiness, uh, especially the, the last part, of course. Uh, strangely, it made me think of uh, certain modes of therapy, psychology, and how they are uh, implicitly or secretly uh, moral, uh, like cognitive behaviorism. It also tries to make the individual functional and in that sense, perhaps uh, make them string their life story along in this kind of quasi-technical fashion. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting um, because uh, I think there's a sort of, um, there's been a sort of revival of ancient ethics in like a sort of a self-help sphere, um, like especially stoicism seems to be popular for whatever reason. Um, but um, yeah, I think in a lot of ways, the self-help and psychology uh, sort of play the same role in our society as um, uh, these ethical systems of ancient Greece played in those societies um, where um, like in those societies, the, uh, religious sphere was sort of breaking down to some extent as um, a universal frame of reference. Um, um, and these ethical systems sort of stepped into the, the place of the religious sphere um, and provided the, these frames of reference for um, structuring someone's life. Um, and I think the same holds for our society, um, you know, in a broad sense that um, uh, religion it doesn't have that same universal value as it might have had in, in previous centuries um, and the you know psychology and self-help um, sort of play the role of um, you know structuring your life um, producing a, a life story for yourself um, in that same way and uh, I think you're right that that CBT um, in a lot of ways does uh, lend itself to that um, that sort of uh, inductive way of structuring your life as just sort of maximizing the happiness across um, uh, as many moments as possible, um, rather than something more, a, a more global understanding of what it is to be a, a, a subject. I, this is ringing a little bit dissonant to me, only insofar as having read, like, the way that Simondo and other places says that we need to sort of heal a kind of schism between 
the technical and the and the cultural or something like that. I'm wondering if you can, Nan, if you can say something about how this, like, if this is a, a sort of account of the subject in relation to the technical, and how does it, like, where does he go next in terms of differing between this and and some of the sort of bigger questions that he's posing at the end of the book? Or, or table it for another time. It's not, I don't know, maybe it's not appropriate to talk about it now. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember what comes next. Um, um, I think, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Um, it might be something we have to uh, just sort of put on our list of questions to, uh, to keep in mind, because I can't remember um, in detail what comes next. But um, the next chapter is, um, is about, uh, let me bring it up. Yeah, the relations between technical thought and other species of thought. So he's going to go into the aesthetic thought and philosophical thought and so on, um, how they are, and scientific thought as well. Um, but I think, um, now I can't remember for sure, but given that he's characterizing technical thinking as inductive, I think he would want to characterize um, religious thinking as deductive um, in, in a corresponding way. Um, and so that's something we'll have to look at, look out for and see if he does make that um, analogy, but I can't remember for sure if he does or not. Okay, fair enough, yeah. But I think, I mean, it would make sense, you know, if he doesn't, if he doesn't actually explicitly say this, I think it would be something sort of a, a, a conservative extension of what he says here. Um, it would make sense that um, the deductive mode of thinking would correspond to religion in the sense that um, you're always starting from the general, um, uh, the totality. Um, so in, in deductive thinking, you know, uh, all men are mortal, Socrates is a, is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. You start from the all men are mortal, the, the sort of uh, universal statements, uh, and then you proceed from there to, to produce um, instances of, de of deductive knowledge. Um, so I think it would make sense to, to consider the religious mode of thinking to be deducted in that sense. Got it. Okay. Um, I, I have two thoughts vying uh, with each other inside my head in response to this last exchange you had. Uh, there's uh, another thing that captures my attention. First, in this passage, he talks about, uh, in talking about these ethical techniques, uh, how they are trying to reconstruct a moral subject within the natural subject. So this makes me think whether he, uh, whether we can extrapolate on his part a search for uh, a subject of morality that would not be distinct from a natural subject. And the, the second thing that I have been thinking may could be uh, related to this, but I'm not sure. Uh, induction and deduction. Uh, in the other book, individuation book, uh, he discusses them again, but uh, in another context, he offers an alternative uh, for these two established modes of logical proceeding, and that's transduction. Again, uh, it is supposed to be uh, on these twin tracks of logic and metaphysics. Uh, it is both a way of thinking and uh, the way uh, matter or uh, the individual comes into being. Maybe a transductive uh, moral subject is there virtually behind this passage. I don't know. That's great. That to me, that's yeah. The reminding me of that is very is very helpful to sort of hold out where where, where I you know I I just couldn't reconcile the way that I 
been thinking about how he's thinking about techniques with with this very much so it seemed somewhat flatter to me in terms of like that you can that we can still come up with a kind of uh a kind of stable moral subject when you bring in transduction it like it kind of throws everything back up in the air again and for me that it makes more sense yeah i think um so the opposition between the inductive and deductive and then the third um, stage is the transductive. Um, so 